Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. We are in week two of a series entitled Stumbling Blocks. Uh, Last week, Preston started off with the stumbling block of pride. But let me just make this statement today. Stumbling stinks. Stumbling stinks. I mean, think about times in your life where you've stumbled physically or spiritually, emotionally. Uh, It has produced some embarrassment. I know it has in my life. It uh, produces frustration, discouragement, but stumbling stinks. So for just a definition, here is what a stumbling block is. It's an impediment. causes a person to lose their balance while walking. And that is what we are as followers of Jesus. We're called to walk with him. That's the pace. The speed of the soul is to walk with him. And we're here to see some of the impediments that cause us to lose our balance in that time. Here's, here's some good news, though. Psalms 66, 8 and 9 says, Bless our God, you people. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He preserves our lives. He keeps our feet from stumbling. That's good news. Psalms 119, 165 says, Those who love your instructions have great peace and do not stumble. Today we're going to talk about the stumbling block of ignorance. Ignorance. By definition, ignorance for most is a lack of knowledge. Simply like, I don't know. We're going to be talking specifically about the ignorance of God's word. Because the essence of ignorance is far more than just a lack of knowledge. It is the loss of life. And we're going to see that. It is the loss of the quality of life that God desires for us to experience, to walk in, and to have on this earth. A quote, John Tillotson, uh, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, he said this. He said, ignorance and inconsideration are the two greatest causes of the ruin of mankind. And I don't think we give enough attention to ignorance. And it's kind of a weird word. It really is. It's, It's silly for such a serious impediment. It is silly. And what we'll see in Scripture is that we have some insight about ignorance. Hosea 4.6, a prophetic word from Hosea to the people of Israel. He says, and we know this, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They're destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That's a serious word. Now this, this word in Hebrew for lack of knowledge is not simply that they do not have cognitive information. It has to do with intimate understanding. It has to do with a relational depth, a touch of the soul that they're missing. This intimate understanding is what is destroying people. And we need to be aware of it. Romans 10.3 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul is writing, and the longing of his heart is that the people of Israel would be uh, saved, that they would know Yeshua, that they would know Jesus, but they're they're being ignorant of God's righteousness. They sought to establish it on their own. Romans 2.4 tells us, are you actually unaware or ignorant of the fact that God's kindness leads you to repentance? 
That is the, to change your inner self, your old way of thinking, to seek his purpose for your life. I think many are ignorant of God's kindness because they see him as a dictator, a rule keeper. But scripture encourages us, don't be ignorant of God's kindness. It is what leads us to change the way that we think, for us to go in a new direction. God's kindness is important, not to be ignorant of. And of course, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. So ignorance is important for us to understand, for us to take inventory in our lives so that we don't stumble. And Satan's greatest weapon uh, for man's ignorance is the weapon of being ignorant of God's word. So let me make some statements to you today. Ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is detrimental. And where ignorance reigns, there are some grave spiritual repercussions for us. Grave spiritual repercussions. That's why Hosea spoke. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. But I want you to smile because we have some good news. But let's, let's continue with a few statements. Ignorance is sometimes obscured. Sometimes we can't see it. Um, before I started dating my wife and we got married, I dated a girl in college and her father was a lawyer. And I'm going to tell this story, but I have to just tell you this. She's, she's great. She's married. Her and her husband are missionaries in Africa. This is awesome. But her dad was an attorney, and he had given her a 1968 Camaro. This thing was pretty, pretty sweet, all right? She called me one day, and she's like, Brad, there is a light on, on the dashboard. And I said, well, wh what is it? What's, what's near it? She said, it's a backwards three. And I was stumped. A backwards three, and then after a few minutes, I was like, do you mean an E? And she's like, yeah, I think that's an E. And I'm like, you're out of gas. You're out of gas. Sometimes ignorance is obscured, all right? This is one of my favorite illustrations. Gary Larson, you'll see the picture of, you know, a young guy, at the mo he's most gifted. He's trying to put his hand on the door. It clearly says uh, to pull, but he's pushing. So sometimes it's obscured. Uh, Ignorance is often inherited. Now, growing up, my, my grandfather is full-blooded Italian. His family were immigrants from Italy. They came in through New York. And um, he would tell me the stories because at that time there was this melting pot of people coming in. But he was often referred to as a WAP. And that is a term for without papers. And so I would hear his conversations in the experience in history of his story, and he would say things because of how he was uh, communicated against, that there was this sort of, you know, way of people referring to each other because of their different ethnicities, and he was called the WAP. And if I didn't come against that ignorance, I, I might have stayed in it, as some of you growing up in families who've had experiences and situations and circumstances, but sometimes ignorance is inherited. Uh, ignorance operates in obstinance. There's things that we think we know that aren't really so, that we sort of continue on. And in our obstinance or uh, the feelings that we have in our ignorance, we just continue on. We don't disrupt them. We don't interrupt them. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 15, 32, He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. So we don't want to remain obstinate. We want to be able to overcome our ignorance. Um, another statement, ignorance resides in many because of intimidation and insecurity. 
I gave this illustration to our men this week. I pulled out my DeWalt power drill and admitted to a room full of men that I've owned this power drill for a lot of time and I have destroyed many a thing with it because I did not understand the settings on top of my drill. I didn't know what one, two, and three, I didn't understand speed and torque, and there's all these 20-something pictures on the side, and as a result of my ignorance, I ran that thing hot and blew the head off of many a screw. And of course, many of those men, they snickered and sneered, you know, how do you not know how to use a drill? Sort of the pride and arrogance, I referred them to Preston's message last week, but um, (laughs) that's what happens. We get intimidated. We feel insecure when all I really needed to do was to ask somebody, humble myself and just say, hey, can you tell me what this means? Because I do not know. But if we remain ignorant, it creates destruction. Um, ignorance grows in isolation. Sometimes we just think we should, we should know better or we're not really sure and so it becomes an echo chamber, and we have insight on some things, and the, the, the superiority complex rises, and so in isolation, ignorance continues to grow. But here, let me say this to us today. Ignorance isn't a disease you contract. Ignorance is a decision that you make. You make the decision to remain ignorant, to lack the intimate understanding, and specifically as it pertains to God's word, I want to stir your hearts in this because so many of us feel like we should know better. We we stay stuck because we think that we uh, know and so we don't approach intimidation and insecurity and so we just sort of go with what we're doing and even though it doesn't feel like we're doing it right or we feel like God's word is boring or God's word is overwhelming to us, it's time for us to break through. It's time for us to make the decision to step out of that because we're going to see what's at stake. God's word is life. God's instruction and guidance, it is an integrated uh, story that leads us to Jesus. And so I want to talk about how we break through ignorance. Now, when you list your Bible heroes, okay, does your list include Ezra? And some of you are like, who is Ezra? Yeah, understand. Now, Ezra over the last several months has climbed my list. And Ezra was a priest, he was a scribe, but he was a great leader. And his name means help. And you find uh, his writings in several places. Tradition tells us that he wrote most of First and Second Chronicles. He wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, which, which was... In, in the beginning, it was one book. But he also wrote, tradition tells us, Psalms 119, the great psalm. And several weeks ago, Preston uh, shared a message, Love the Word, where he took pieces, passages from Psalms 119, beautiful passages. And I want to encourage you to write it down to go back to that message and then be reminded that Ezra penned this. Now, what is significant is Ezra is responsible for the second emigration of Israelites back to Jerusalem from Babylon. Now, you may not know this, but the Babylonian captivity that took place under Nebuchadnezzar, 
uh, uprooted all of the people of Israel into a chaotic and confusing situation where they were ripped of the things that they held as beautiful. Their ways in which they followed after Jesus. And then King Cyrus from Persia comes and overthrows Babylon. And he really, and you'll, you'll, this is prophesied in Jeremiah, he is kind and good to the people of Israel. He allows them to return to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel takes the first group back. Ezra takes the second group back. Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the walls. Zerubbabel re rebuilds the temple. But Ezra has a really important piece of this story and something that I really think I want uh, to, to get within our bones and in our bloodstream. So he falls on his knees in humility. And the Bible tells us in Ezra 7, 9 through 10 that the gracious hand of the Lord is on him. Not the fist, not the pointed finger of the Lord, but the gracious hand of the Lord is on him because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. Now, he's a scribe, which is a, which is a prominent position because it, it required that he knew language, he knew how to write things down, and of course, he is on behalf of the king, King Artaxerxes at this point in time. He is crafting and taking the words of, 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 for history, for historic account of the legacy that's there, but even in the middle of Babylonian captivity. There is a preciousness to his prizing of God's word and God's presence through scripture, through the Torah. And he humbles himself to call the people back because the people of Israel are a people of the text, a people of the book. But they've lost their way, just like we lose our way. They've, they've been overcome by false gods and idolatry. And before you go, like, I don't worship graven images. There's things that cause us we always say idolatry is just intimacy with an image, fame, fortune, you name it, we get distracted. And we always find our story within the people of Israel, and we find God's faithfulness, his unfailing love. He's the God of first, second, third, fourth, fifth chance, chances. But in Nehemiah 8 through 13, Ezra calls the people back to the book. And in it we see this beautiful... Um, process of Ezra calling the people back to the beauty and the humanity of the text. For days and hours, they stand up, and Ezra and the Levites are, are recalling them to Scripture. They're being reminded because they grew up understanding this. And they, they begin, after hours, they start to confess. They get convicted, not condemnation. There's conviction, though. Yes, these words are life. This is guidance for us, instruction. This is how we maintain our stability in the midst of difficult circumstances. So he, he revives them. And they, they weep and they mourn. And he settles them and says, hey, hold on, all right. Let's, not, let's, let's stop our crying. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's celebrate. And they commit to the covenant. And then they celebrate and they feast. It's this seven-day process. And what's beautiful about that is we need a reviving and refreshing back to the beauty and the reality of God's word. And we see this in our pilgrim fathers. They brought with them the same honor, the same awe and reverence for the word of God. Uh, Daniel Webster, an American statement, he said the Bible came with them. 
President Woodrow Wilson wrote, America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of the righteousness which are derived from the revelation of Holy Scripture. And chaos and confusion comes to cultures. It came in Scripture. It's come to our, our, our culture. The deconstruction of the family, what it means to be man, what it means to be woman, what it means to live under the shade of the, God's revealed path for life. We've lost our way and we need to return to the text so that we might awaken the awe and the wonder of the word of God. Luke 10, 25 through 26, I think this part of what Jesus says is, is so important. He says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. This is his motivation. He, he stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Seems like a valuable question. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say, and how do you read it? How do you read it? Not, not that you simply read it, but how you read it has an impact. So a question for us today is, how have you been reading it? Maybe you're, you're like some that, that said it's overwhelming and boring, and your lens of Scripture is, is that it's, it's like castor oil that you have to take a, you know, a spoonful of. Uh, or maybe, uh, as we've heard some stories of, of people that grew up in, in parents that were doing their best, and as a punishment, you know, for doing bad things, go read your Bible. And the association is the Bible is for bad people. And so that, that is sort of what it, it's like some restriction to you. But how do you read it? And don't hang your head. This isn't condemnation. We want to revive our hearts today. We, but we want to look at our motivation and mindset. So here's a, here's a few ways. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about methods. But, but what's your motivation and mindset coming into it? Is it the warm fuzzies approach? Right? Where you sort of read the Bible for a glowing, subjective experience of God ignited by words of the text, whether you understand what they mean or not. So it kind of translates to sort of a frothy reading. You know, maybe it's a, a grab bag of, you know, pep talk, one-liners where you're like, eh, I like that one. Um, is it the magic eight ball approach? Right, you know what I'm talking about, where you ask it questions and then sort of shake it up and then see what it says and, you know, what car to buy, where to work, who to marry. Uh, and you don't like that answer, so let's shake it up again. Is it, is it the rules approach? You're looking for commands to obey, to reinforce a sense of personal superiority. You know, it results in sort of a pharisaical approach of reading God's scripture. Uh, is it the doctrinal approach? Where you read the Bible uh, as a theological repository so that you can plunder it for ammunition at your next theological debate at Starbucks, right? And just you fire bullets at one another about what you think is right or, or whatever it is. But Scripture is not these things, although there, there are, there's some merit in those things. But it is a unified story that leads us to Jesus. And it's important to understand where the narrative and the arc is going. And it's important for us to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what is our relationship with God's word? And I, and I think it's not always the best advice uh, to tell people to simply, hey, read your Bible. In the same way that I wouldn't hand the keys to my truck to my 13-year-old son and say, drive my truck. It could be destructive. 
It could be damaging, right? What does he need? He needs to learn how. He needs to learn some things, and I believe that we do as well. Otherwise, we'll use Scripture ignorantly. That's proven time and time again throughout history of people using God's Word in a way that brings harm, endangers lives, hurts people. Is that where the story is leading us? No. So we're going to look at our lens, and I, I hope to give you some fresh ways and we can take this alongside of a message that Preston preached on love the word. But we're going we're gonna to end with some celebration and taking some action. So here's, here's how we get breakthrough with ignorance in the lens we need uh, to properly start on this path. Number one, we begin with humility. Humility is really this posture of welcoming God's word. And it is uh, an opportunity for us to come and place ourselves in a posture of, of curiosity. Really the first step to learning anything is to not be smart. It's not to, to think that you know it all. It is, is to want to, to have curiosity. And for us to be able to come to God's word and to, in a state of humility, to confess, I don't know how. I don't know how. And that's hard for a lot of us to be able to say that. But, but I believe that coming in this posture allows us to begin to open ourselves up to what God's word can do for us. Psalms 119, 120. I tremble in fear of you, or I stand in awe of you. I stand in awe of your regulations. They're awesome and they're wonderful. Is that how you see God's word? Proverbs 15, 32 through 33. He who heeds rebuke gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. It's the process. It's the way. Right? There isn't anything that you've learned. Some of you are accountants. Bless you. And I'm not sure that anybody was like, woohoo, when you're learning gap accounting principles. But you did something that was hard, and eventually all those numbers, they showed up in a way that you could actually tell a story of a business. Tell a story of something. God's word can come the same way. It's not easy to start with. Some have said it's like castor oil, then it's like cereal, then it's like peaches and cream. It's part of the process. Where are you in that process? Psalms 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Psalms 119, 89, your eternal word, O Lord, it stands firm in heaven. It is an anchor when times are unstable, when circumstances and emotions are unstable, God's word stands firm. Psalms 119, 143, as pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in him. Psalms 107, 20, he sent his word and healed them. One translation says, it healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Have you sowed the seed of God's word in the soil of your heart so that when you come up against chaos and calamity, the fruit is produced? That's what we must do. When we come up against reports that are difficult, it will not be magic. It will be the eternal supernatural power of God's word that will come. 
and give instruction. It will bring health and wholeness to our lives. Psalms 1, 1 through 3. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they shall prosper in all they do. Romans 10, 17 says, then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is a relational word. It's the intimate understanding. It's not an accumulation of information. It is not cognitive. It is relational. And we are invited to participate in it with humility. And all those benefits evoke a heart that should lean in. Regardless of what your experience has been, regardless of who's told you, just on the merit of a few of these things, it, it, it beckons us to spend time learning how, learning how to come into the story that leads us to Jesus. Jeremiah 23, 29, this will really encourage you, or excuse me, this, this picture is great. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Humility, curiosity. And Jesus responds to the enemy in the chaos of the wilderness experience with it is written, it is written. It is written. So we begin with humility. Second, we we breathe it in. Word is breath. We must breathe it in. Now in the natural, there's all this scientific research over really the last 10 years that has shown what breath and the development of breath in a specific way does for us. Greater focus, enhanced cognition, resilience, better control, control over our physical, mental, and emotional states. It changes the way that we respond to stressful situations. And let me remind us about this. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed, that is, he created the body of man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. The breath of life, the man became a living being, an individual complete in body and spirit. This word for breath in Hebrew is ruach. It means spirit. It means breath. In Greek, it's, in the New Testament, it's pneuma, breath, and spirit. And so with that, like we, we are able to operate because of that breath. Now look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed, given by divine inspiration. It's profitable for instruction, for conviction, for correction, restoration to obedience, for training in righteousness. It's breath. We breathe it in, God breathes it out, and we know what it's like when we're labored, stressed, overwhelmed, the the asthmatic condition that takes place. We need breath, and God tells us, go on further, Hebrews 4.12, his word is breath. The word of God is living and active and full of power, making it operative, energizing and effective. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as the division of the soul and spirit, the completeness of a person and of both joints and marrow, the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and judging the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. John 6, 63, it's the spirit who gives life. Well, there you go, Brad. We just want to make an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Wait, wait, wait. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. And they are life. Is that how we see it? His breath. Our breathing it in. 
Jeremiah 51, 17. It's really encouraging to all of us today. All mankind is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Uh, <laughs> every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there's no breath in them. And that makes me realize, like, when I see it as something that I can breathe in, then I bring it to places that I might not think about bringing it. Maybe your picture is simply just somebody seated holding their Bible, but maybe you walk with it. Maybe the movement of walking and talking and breathing and breath is important. Maybe you work out with it. You know, I know many uh, have gym memberships, and I'm just coming up against this myself as an environment to go and stare at myself in the mirror or to be distracted and look around. Uh, the men have been doing workouts here on Wednesday mornings as we're taking and breathing in God's scripture as we apply certain passages that have uh, conviction and weight. You know, Jesus carrying the crossbeam of 100 pounds on his back up Golgotha, over 600 yards. That's a workout. And is it possible that we can reimagine where we bring God's word and we're not just simply in one posture, but maybe it's a myriad of postures. Breathe it in. Next, bathe in it. The word is, is water. We wash in it. Like Ezra is standing at the water gate, which is a great picture that there is a washing that needs to take place in the Israelites because they, they have debris and dirt that has gotten on them from Babylonian captivity and they need to be washed in the water of the word. That's what Ephesians 5, 26 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself for her, the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word so that he can present a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. John 7, 37 through 39, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone's thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Like, do you ever think about, while you're taking a shower, the scripture that you've meditated upon, and some of the dirt and the debris that's gotten on you from the environments that you are in consistently, and that you, in that moment, just... Think about God's word as it washes and there's a physical washing that's taking place. We need that. We need to reclaim those moments and see the totality of that. Psalms 19.7, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. That's what water does, right? You splash it on your face. It revives you. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Splash some water on your face. And as you do, remind yourself of the words that, that are life, that are water to your soul so that you might be able to integrate and metabolize them into your life. Bathe in it. Next, break bread with it. The word is, is food. That's what we see, the imagery here. We must chew it. We don't just read it, we eat it. Right? We have to savor it. Jesus said in John 6, 48 and 50, yes, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. Bread. Psalms 119, 15 through 16. I will meditate on your precepts. Now, Preston has given us a great picture of meditation, ruminating or chewing, like a cow chews a cud or a sheep chews cud, throws it up, then re-chews it up and eats it to get all of the nutrients. 
There's a, there's a really great Hebrew word here, though, towards, for meditating. It's hagah. And it's like an animal growling over its prey. I have a small dog at home, and if you go near his bowl, when you feed him, he looks at you, shows his teeth, and it's like, Arr. it's great, okay? This is a great picture, because he's hungry, of how we're to meditate on God's word. We are to prize it. We are to chew it. We are to tear it. We are to grab the nutrients of it. So I will meditate on your precepts and thoughtfully regard your ways, the path of life established by your precepts. I'll delight in your statues. I will not forget your word. Ezekiel 3.3, 3, 3, then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. You got a honey packet? Keep it in your purse. Keep it somewhere where you can see it to remind yourself to delight in God's word. We've talked about it before. The ancient Hebrew parents would, on the first day of school, pour honey over the slate so that the children would have an association to God's word, that it was as sweet as honey. So for those of us who were disciplined by reading our Bible, our association is not delight. It's probably duty and obligation but that's not how God's word is to be um, associated. It's to be delight. Acts 2.42. Uh, the apostles devoted themselves, or excuse me, the, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Do you do that? Do you do that with your family? While you're eating a meal around the table, I know it's difficult. I've got teenagers at home. It's not always easy to wrangle and wrestle them. They're off to their friends and doing this or that. But when we come to the table, we are reminded of the bread of life. And that is a moment that we steward as parents and as people. In order for our homes to be the headquarter for wholeness, we steward God's words in those moments to give our children association to the delight and the the sweetness and the beauty and the bread of Scripture. That's what the Shema reminds us to do. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. That's how it gets in your bloodstream. Like it's great to receive the instruction on Sunday or Thursday. It's great to do that. It's great to watch podcasts. It's great to follow some of the people that you love who bring God's word and are teaching and instructing on it. But we're going to see in just a second, we're not here, nor would we or anybody who comes here, Preston, to, to simply just quote the words of your favorite Bible teacher whether it's Judah or Stephen or Rick or whatever the person's name is, that will leave us imbalanced. So the, the next part of breakthrough is to be like the Bereans because we must study the word. And this is the safety of becoming not a scholar, but becoming a steward of God's word. It says in Acts 17, 11, the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. That's what we want you to do. Take the message, open up your Bible, and see if what we're saying is true, not just take it. And, and it's important for us to do that. 
so that we don't get into error. Because there's lots of things being shared by lots of people, and when we open Scripture and we see, we can tend to see where there is error. But last, and most important of all, is we have to bind it all to Jesus. We bind it all to Jesus because the overarching storyline of all of Scripture is leading and culminating us to Jesus. And this is what Jesus was telling the religious elite of the day. He told them who were faithful to Moses and opposed to Christ. He said, if you believe Moses, you, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, John 5, 46. He tells the disciples, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Luke 24, 44. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And even as I mentioned to you the book of Ezra or Nehemiah, you're going to see in that story, if you just conclude with Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to see that the process that they went through didn't culminate in total victory because the prophecies and the fulfillment of Jesus was still to come. But we can learn from their examples. That's what Scripture says. We read those stories, and we have the master instructor in the Holy Spirit. We have the guide, the one to come alongside of us and help us. And we break bread in community. It's a Hebrew concept called haverim, which is study with friends. We do it together because we admit to ourselves, I don't know. I don't know how. I'm doing it this way. And we submit ourselves in humility to one another because the importance is to find who Jesus is. And to get his instruction. John 1, 1 through 4, 14. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. Before Genesis 1. This is the real beginning. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. This is why we see Jesus leading off in his parables. He's not talking about reading as much as he is listening. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Anyone with ears to hear, listen. Listening is something we do when someone speaks to us, and reading is what we do when someone writes to us. And Jesus is communicating, let your ears be open. Recover the atmosphere of the spoken word of God. That's, the, that's how we, br we bring it in. And John on the island of Patmos, he resounds this. He, he is writing to the seven churches, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. There's this process of us being uh, called back to being the people of the book. Us being called back to awaken an awareness, to have conviction, not condemnation, but conviction for us to sit and ask ourselves, have we been resistant? Have we been obstinate? Have we been bored? Have we been overwhelmed? Whatever it is. And for us to be convicted in our hearts, I want to be a person of the text because his words are life. He sent his word and it healed them. I want to sow that into the soil of my heart. And then came confession. I don't know what I'm doing. It's a beautiful thing to admit that. We've got hundreds of guys that have been doing this. And to watch a group of men come together and say it, it's, it's bold, it's brave. But we have to be a people that, that will admit that maybe we don't fully understand. Then they committed. They committed 
to the covenant of God's word, to make it a regular rhythm because it was words that were leading them to life. And then they celebrated. Conviction, confession, commitment to covenant, celebration. And I, I just want you to just for a moment, just ponder in your hearts. Where have you been with God's word? No condemnation. Just the realization of where you are. If you have a, maybe a piece of paper, or if you want to write it on your phone, or if just in your heart, I just want to just allow you to just, just see where you are, for you to just humbly admit, this is where I've been. I haven't been doing it. And not to feel bad and hang your head, and we'll see in the story in Nehemiah 8 through 13, they were crying and weeping. And it was an important part for them to do that. Because there was so much chaos and confusion and misery in their life. And maybe, you know, for us, it's just become sort of a spiritual grab, grab bag or a ma magic eight ball. God's kind. He's unfailing in his goodness and his mercy to you and to me. But he always restores us, calls us to come back because he knows his words are life. Here's what Psalms 119, 169 through 176 says. And I want you to hear this. Let my cry come right into your presence, God. This is a message translation. Provide me with the insight that comes only from your word. Give my request your personal attention. Rescue me on the terms of your promise. Let praise cascade off my lips. After all, you've taught me the truth about life. And let your promises ring from my tongue. Every order you've given is right. Put your hand out and steady me since I've chosen to live by your counsel. I'm homesick, God, for your salvation. I love it when you show yourself. Invigorate my soul so that I can praise you well. Use your decrees to put iron in my soul. And should I wander off like a lost sheep, which often happens, seek me. I'll recognize the sound of your voice. And so, in this moment, I just, wherever you are, not to have guilt, condemnation, or shame come, but to have a conviction to be a people. And here's how we want to help you. Number one, let me just tell you, great place if you're feeling a little wobbly, you can go on Amazon and you can get a life application study Bible. You can get an archaeological study Bible. They will help you. And it will give you more grace to, to walk this out. I encourage you to gather with a group of friends. And to all of you, come in a posture of humility and, and grow together. Don't isolate. Don't become an echo chamber in your own thoughts. And in August, we are going to start a series, we'll call it adult education classes, on Sunday mornings from 7 to 8, called Building Blocks. You can go to gatewaylife.com forward slash building blocks. And if you're interested, if you would say, I don't, I don't know, or I'd like to grow, just, just simply put your information in the box and we're going to give you more information. There's a great tool that exists in very short segments called The Bible Project. You can go to YouTube or thebibleproject.com. They've got some great supplemental resources to help you get your handles and to overcome your ignorance by learning. That's all I did with my drill. Hey, would you show me what this means? And then guess what? I totally knew what that meant. Not that difficult. But we don't have to go our own way. And God wants us to invite us to do this. So I'm going to invite you as we end to do it simply this. Would you stand to your feet? And in the awareness of, of just really where you are, I don't want you to feel overwhelmed by it or feel like, oh, I'm bad. No, rem remind yourself of God's goodness. But in order to deal with the calamity and the chaos of our culture, 
God's always inviting us to become people of his breath and his bread and to walk and to enjoy. So what's, what's the next step? What's the next step? God, open up our eyes of understanding that we would see. Give us the boldness to overcome feeling insecure or intimidated and just take the next step. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.